And so, Spirit, now do the work that you have been sent to do. Teach us by this, your word, the word that was given to us by the Father, by the Son. Strengthen us in our inner being to read it well and to respond well. Guard us from hearing error and feast us upon the goodness and the glory of your Son, our Savior, our King, Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray and we come. Amen. So, this is a great passage, isn't it? Look at it. I mean, let's just dive right in. Verse, uh, verse 21. It is so cool. Jesus himself says it. It's right there in red letters. It must be true. If you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And he says more. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I need a Mercedes Benz. Lord, I need a promotion. Lord, I need a happy marriage. I need a marriage. Come on. You said. Is our faith strong enough to move mountains? Let's pray harder. Let's let's together conjure up enough faith. We'll share the Mercedes Benz. Okay, are we all in agreement? Come on. We can do this, folks. We can do it. Jesus said it. Oh, we face so many challenges. Some of them real. You all can come up with a list. Some of them imagined. You can come up with that list, too. So many challenges. Personal challenges. Family challenges. Parenting challenges. Financial challenges. Challenges, work challenges, church challenges, education challenges, county challenges, city challenges, country challenges, worldwide challenges. The categories are endless, and the list in each category is endless. If only we find ourselves thinking, 
we could stir up, if only we could cultivate, if only we could conjure up enough faith, whatever that is. After all, we think, Jesus said it. If our faith is strong enough, we could move mountains. Didn't he say that? We have it right there in the red letters. But the mountains that most challenge and threaten our faith rarely appear to be so large. Natasha Moore, uh, writing a review of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Silence. And the title of her review poses this question, Do we have the faith to change the world? As with the novel by Shusaku Endo, by the same title, the reading of which I highly recommend, the movie is the, on which that novel, on which the movie is closely based, the issue and the question comes down to this tiny, insignificant, almost absurdly small act. Will you trample? a postcard picture of Jesus, who is the so-called fumier, the, the, eh, the picture that was thrown on the ground for you to step on, to fumi <laughs> on, the fumier. Will you trample the image of Jesus? It's just a postcard, really. To trample it means freedom of sorts, but the denial of your faith, the denial of your conscience. To refuse to trample it, to do nothing, to just stand there and not trample the fumier of Christ means certain, slow, excruciating death. On the face of it, it's absurd. There's so many ways that I would rationalize stepping on the fumier. So many ways I could justify that action. Imagine the number of people who would not suffer if I stepped on the fumier. To dismiss the fumier, simply explain it away as but a picture. Can it really matter? Natasha Moore goes on to say. Can it really matter more than someone's life? What would it accomplish, really? And as good Americans, what would it practically accomplish? 
if I stepped on it. I step on it, I die. What good can I do dead? It would be such a waste. Such a tiny act fraught with cosmic importance. Because acts matter. Words matter. Symbols matter. Symbolic actions matter. Such a tiny act fraught with cosmic importance because symbols and symbolic actions matter. In this case, the matter at hand, the issue at hand, is not whether or not the fumier in and of itself is of any value or importance. That would be a painfully superficial, painfully secular, and even quite cynical way of seeing the matter, as common as it is to see things that way. No, the matter at hand for these Japanese Christians, before whom the fumier had been placed and the demand made, is this. Is the Jesus in the picture... Lord, or is your shogun Lord? Is the Jesus in that picture Lord or not? Declare it now. Yes or no. By the way, for those of us in the postmodern world, it's complicated is not the answer. It's much simpler, not to say painless, not to say without cost, but it is much simpler. Yes or no, is Jesus who he said he was? Did Jesus rise from the dead on the third day? Yes or no? To step on the fumier is to offer your definitive no, he did not. No, he is not Lord. To refuse is to give your resounding and final yes. Such a small event with such mountainous and cosmic implications. Can I think about it? The mountains that challenge our faith rarely appear as large and as of cosmic importance as in fact they are. And so we rarely recognize them or treat them as the challenges to our faith that they are. Daily decisions, daily habits that constitute the real challenges to our faith. Will I forgive her yet again? Will I grant grace and the benefit of the doubt to him yet again? 
Will I hold my tongue here? Will I redirect our conversation there? Will I close my ears and guard my ears? Will I resist the powerful undertow of our culture's cynicism? A slip of the tongue here, indulging in a bit about bit of gossip there. These all seem like such small and tiny and insignificant things. What does it really matter? But when seen in the light of faith, in the light of who Jesus is, we recognize them each as fraught with cosmic importance. Because in God's design, words matter. In God's design, symbols matter. In God's design, sacrament matters. In God's design, symbolic action matters. What we say and what we do matters because what we say and what we do demonstrates what is true about the universe. It demonstrates whether or not we know that Jesus is Lord. And which Jesus he is. And of what he is Lord. This is what Matthew now is confronting us with. It is so easy for us to come to this strange story of the fig tree and just say, dude, Jesus, don't you think you're overreacting just a little bit? Go five more feet and order yourself a sandwich at the deli for crying out loud. You have to curse a fig tree. Get a hold of yourself. I know it's been a full week. Take a day off. Calm down, Jesus. It seems so out of character. In fact, this is one of the only places where we read, He became hungry. And so we find ourselves thinking, Dude, what is going on here? What is that about? So some commentators say, Well, Matthew wants us to see the real humanity of Jesus. Some commentators are saying, Jesus wants us to understand his power. Poor Jesus, he's so just hungry and frustrated and tired and angry. We can understand that. These miss the point. Let's look at the context. Remember, this section, beginning with with chapter 21, as it has transitioned from chapter 20 into 21, the so-called triumphal entry, the prophetic sign of the of the king, the king of peace, arriving on a donkey, a burden of a a beast of peace. He is not coming on a a horse ready ready to engage in battle. 
He is entering now in a well-known sign of peace. And then we see him in the temple, purging the temple, purifying the temple. And now we see this whole fig tree thing. Brothers and sisters, you understand these things go together. They, they fit together. And we have to read them together. These three prophetic actions taken together can be summed up by the question of the origin, the nature, and the authenticity of Jesus' authority. And lo and behold, of course, that's where the passage takes us. So what's going on here? Well, keep in mind, it's the week of Passover. People are coming from all over. Jesus has arrived, and they're going to have this, their Passover meal together. So it's spring. And so it's the season in which there is a reasonable expectation that there might be the beginnings of fruit showing on the fig tree, the so-called early fig. Figs which will later ripen into mature figs. Mark tells us that it is not yet the season of figs, which is his way of saying it is early in the season. It's not the time for the sweet, plump figs to be showing, to be, to be out. But upon seeing the leaves of the tree... There were only leaves, he says. Upon seeing the leaves, there is a reasonable expectation that there would be evidence of early fruit. It's edible, not as sweet, but it's edible. But there's something more going on here than merely that Jesus was hungry, Jesus had an appetite, Jesus had a craving. And seeing a fig tree, he had a reasonable expectation that there would be the early fruit on it that could sort of, sort of uh, satiate the craving, satiate the appetite. But he gets there, and he finds that there is only leaves. It only gave the appearance of a healthy and fruitful tree. But the substance was gone. There is a prophetic background to what's going on here. Israel was referred to throughout the prophets by a number of metaphors. For example, one of the more well-known ones is the metaphor of the faithless wife that we read about in Hosea. Another is the metaphor of the vineyard that doesn't produce grapes, but only vines and thorns and thistles and brambles. These are metaphors that were used to speak of Israel. And the fig and the fig tree was such a metaphor, not as well known, but nonetheless such a metaphor. For example, we read in Micah chapter 7, we read God lamenting, for he came 
craving the sweet fruit of his vineyard, the figs of his planting. And when he came, he found the trees barren. Micah chapter 7. None of the early figs that I craved were to be found. The background to this prophetic sign is not that Jesus was hungry. It's Micah. Jesus is saying that quite literally now God has come into the presence of his people craving to delight in the fruit of his labors only to find them barren. It's a terrifying symbolic action. The tree looked like it was flourishing and fruitful. It gave the appearance of fruitfulness so that one could reasonably expect to find fruit there, much like all of the activity that was seen and heard and smelled at the temple. For all of this activity, surely there is faithfulness and fruitfulness. And when Jesus arrives, he finds not only is it not fruitful, but it is actually bearing exactly the opposite of what it was designed to bear. And so it is with the fig tree. And so the disciples say, whoa, dude, that was cool. Can we do that? And Jesus gives this strange answer. And with Jesus' answer, he helps us to see that the fig tree sign and the, and the temple sign actually fit together. Because he says this, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to, this, to the fig tree here, but even if you say to this mountain upon which the temple is built, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. You see, it is not about the appearance of leaves. That's not what defines faithfulness. It is, it is not a faith. Our faith and our faithfulness is not about how busy we are with activities, however noble or religious in character they may be. Faith and faithfulness is not a matter of what we do or can do. Or for those, of, for those who are so inclined, faith and faithfulness is not a matter of being free to not do whatever it is I don't want to do. Faith and faithfulness is a matter of who Jesus is. It's not even a matter of who we are. It's a matter of who Jesus is. And so we have this question here. Who sent you? Where do you get this authority? Who do you think you are? And so Jesus says, well, I'll answer your question if you answer me a question. The baptism of John, is it from heaven 
or is it from man? You, of course, see the conundrum. And, of course, Matthew makes it explicit. If we say it's from, from heaven, Jesus, well, then why don't you believe him? If we say it's from man, then the crowds will erupt. And so they find themselves caught on the horns of their own dilemma. And Jesus says, okay, you've answered the question. And you expose your own slavery and your own blindness. For you see, if John was a prophet from heaven, then Jesus is Lord. But if John was just a prophet from among men, I don't care, it doesn't matter who you think Jesus is, it's irrelevant. Think what you want. Do whatever you want. You're free to follow him or not. Do whatever. And so that's the question here that these, that these three signs lead us to. Who is this Jesus? Is he Lord? Or is he not? The disciples question how. How do we do that? How much faith do we need in order to do that? What's the quality of faith we must have to do that? What must I do? Exposes that the disciples were missing the point as well as the Pharisees. Tell me what to do so I can check it off my list and move on with my agenda, however noble that agenda may be. You see, we are consumed. By the way, that's a carefully chosen word for those of us who are saturated in a consumer culture. We are consumed with the notion of what we must do to accomplish great things, to make for ourselves a great name, to leave for our kids a great legacy, or even just to be found faithful and fruitful. But note well, Jesus does not say in Matthew's account, if you have enough faith, if you have a strong enough faith, it says, if you have faith, do not doubt. There's not, a, there's not a question of quality or quantity here. Because the point is not how Jesus has done this. The point is who Jesus re is revealed to be in the action. He comes to the fig tree that he created. He comes to the fig tree that he designed. That he put in place. And the fig tree is not functioning according to design. The fig tree is living out its own curse. We come to the temple and we behold all kinds of activities, but the very thing for which it's designed is not happening. The worship of all nations before the throne of God. 
Jesus is the one who designed the temple. And it's not functioning the way it was designed to function. The point is not how Jesus does it. The point is, who does this action show him to be? It shows him to be the Lord of creation. The Lord of redemption. The Lord of all. The question of faith, brothers and sisters, is not who is trusting. The question is rather, in whom are you trusting? The question is not even, do you believe Jesus is Lord? The question is rather, is Jesus Lord? It's not a question of what you subjectively imagine to be the case. The question is, objectively speaking, what is the case? Is Jesus Lord? You see, brothers and sisters, if by faith we know that Jesus is Lord, this will increasingly show in 10,000 tiny, apparently insignificant little decisions. Do I forgive that person yet again? Well, is Jesus Lord? Do I have to forgive that person? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I forgive that person? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I truly honor those fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and teachers and students and liberals and conservatives that for whatever reason seem to me to be so dishonorable? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I, be a faith, can I be faithful to a spouse who repeatedly shows themselves to be faithless? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I rejoice together with workers who arrive to work late and yet receive the same pay? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I really restrain my tongue from, from speaking evil? Well, is Jesus Lord? Can I really love my enemies? Well, is Jesus Lord? Brothers and sisters, it really does come down to that. It really is. A very simple question. It's not to say it's not costly, not to say that it's not painful, not to say that it's not inconvenient, not to say that it's not excruciatingly uncomfortable, carefully chosen word, but it really is quite simple. If Jesus is Lord, then that fact will be increasingly evident in the fruit of our lives. So that when Jesus, craving to delight in the fruit of his good labors, encounters us on the street full of leaves, will he find the sweet fruit of his character? 
emerging more and more in us. Chattanooga Valley Presbyterian Church, we are known to be a very friendly and welcoming church, and that is something to celebrate. And that's wonderful. But I have a further question to ask you. Are we known to be a loving church? A church of people who willingly and joyfully lay down their lives for one another and even the passing stranger? Who willingly and joyfully lay down their time, lay down their agendas for one another and even strangers who are passing by? It really does boil down to this question. Brothers and sisters, is Jesus Lord? Natasha Moore asked, do we have faith to change the world? If by that she is asking, do we have or possess in our being enough faith, enough of the quality of faith by which we can move mountains, well, then the answer is no. But if she means, as I think she does, if she means, is that in which we entrust the whole of our lives, the living reign of King Jesus, enough to change the world? Then the answer is a resounding yes. And that is true for the world. That is true for our nation. That is true for your own life. It's true for your job. It's true for your marriage. It's true for your parenting. And I will tell you that this passage is as poignant and as pressing and as painful to me as I imagine it could be to you. Because the question is not what you must do or how to do it or how much we must do, but simply, who do we know Jesus to be? Is Jesus Lord or not? It's a simple question, fraught with cosmic implications. Let's go to him.